You are listening to Aim for the Bushes. I am your podcast person, Pavlo, also known as JPav, also known as Pav, also known as Pavi. And with me today is a special podcast person, Christian. Hello. He is back with us once again to discuss film and movies and television. Again. As we are wont to do. Yeah. All right, cool. So everything good on your end, Christian? Yes, sir. Everything is quite good on my end, uh, all things considered. Thank you for asking. Yes. How about you? Uh, yeah, all, th- all things considered. 2020 has been quite a year, but we're doing good. We're doing good. Today's topic is historical accuracy in film. Is it important? Is it not? We'll find out. But before we get to that, our non-legal legal disclaimer, which is simply that the opinions that we express today are just that, our opinions. You can feel free to agree with us. You can feel free to disagree with us. We're not saying we have the ultimate truth or that only our opinions are valid. We are open to anyone else's opinions on certain certain subjects. All right. So like I said, historical accuracy in film. Is it something that's important? Do you want to start off, Christian? Or what, what, what are your thoughts on this here as we, as we trace through certain issues? Okay, so... Uh, I would say that from from my own personal perspective, like if I'm watching a film and if something's going to bother me, um, I I would say it it operates on a kind of spectrum. Okay. I think there's a difference between inaccuracy and then misinformation when it comes to historical content in film. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with how the, you know, how, basically how the film is. I mean, unfortunately, it has a lot to do with how the film is being marketed as well right like when you're trying to sell the movie and you're trying you're you know if you're trying to sell something like i don't know like kingdom of heaven for example which was a ridley scott film which took place during the crusades yes they're not trying to sell or troy right troy with brad pitt and americana that's a better example which i think that's a wolfgang peterson film i think i think so so yeah. yeah so take that film and then you go you see a trailer for it and they're not trying to pitch you. Oh no, this is ancient Greek history that, that we're trying to represent on screen. They're trying to go, this is action. This could be cool fight scenes. This is going to be Brad Pitt looking really, really good. This is going to be, you you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, This isn't about, Oh, this is going to be like, this is going to be your go-to cinematic experience to try to experience what, you know, ancient Greece, what Troy would have been like, you know what I mean? No, no, I um, understand. Whereas, whereas a, a film, let's say like, um, I think in one of the, one of the links that you shared with me, you know, a movie like Lincoln, for yeah. example. So Steven Spielberg's Lincoln, that's a movie where they are trying to sell it as, um, you know, this is an accurate portrayal of American history and a lot of time and a lot of effort and attention was was dedicated to making this as uh, accurate an experience possible but you know while still respecting the fact that real life is often a little bit too boring to portray on screen and you know i here's the thing here's here's what i will say i think that there's you know what um when when a lot of people see even even in a film like i'll I'll give an example like the day after tomorrow for example the roland emmerich disaster film which is all about, you know, this sort of like potentially disastrous consequences vis-a-vis climate change, right? Yeah. Um, and this idea that there will be, um, that this, that, you know, 
climate change will engender for certain parts of the world this this sort of you know almost like an ice age kind of phenomena well the science you know proposed in that movie isn't off like there's a lot of you know this idea of reaching a critical desalinization point right where you have all of this fresh water that's being dumped into the ocean by the ice caps melting and more and more glaciers being released into into the ocean and then you have this sort of this delicate balance that sort of feeds the gulf stream for example i'm not a i'm not a climatologist but you know so you have this this mixing yeah. of fresh water and salt water and that eventually that upsets the general you know our general ecosystem and well our general weather system right yeah and so like that part of it is actually quite realistic but it's the timeline right it's this super condensed, condensed yeah. timeline that makes it unrealistic right and i think that's where the movie making happens where you can't tell a story that takes place you know it, at that or at least you can't tell that kind of blockbuster story that takes place over several decades you know this isn't like isaac asimov's foundation like you can't <laughs> expect people to sit through something like that yeah and so i i think that there is and i think that does happen in other films um sort of historical films where you're going oh but it didn't really happen that way well no no shit you know they had to sort of condense history a little bit to make it um digestible for an audience make it interesting yes and so i'm just gonna interject right there uh because yeah you do bring up a good point there's different expectations that are set out by the film the story it's trying to tell and what audiences expect from a film yeah so I think that's like an important like distinction to make when we're talking about historical type films, whether it's like a biography of someone or whether it's in a specific event or whether it's just something set in a specific time or a specific mm -hmm. place or depicting a specific culture. Is that what works in film or what works in telling a story or this could also extend to TV is different from what you'll or what works or what's acceptable or, or what's expected in like a history book or a history lesson. A film or a TV show can't give you all the details and nuances that you can come to expect in something yeah. like a historical written text because people don't want to sit through a boring history lesson as, as a film, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. Right. So that, that plays into it. And that's why you can't have like all like these nitty gritty details in terms of yeah, like yeah. what you're talking about for like day after tomorrow in terms of like the time scales for certain things, but even smaller things like someone's emotional arc of an historical figure, you might condense certain other characters that, in, in, that, that they interact with, with one person, because, you know, they might have the same thing with like five different people. And as someone watching a film, you don't want to watch the same plot point or beat point play out yeah. five times with five different people. Yeah. You know, or you want to see like a love interest, but maybe this person didn't have a love interest or they had a love interest with someone else. But for the yeah. terms of the story, it's like it works better if it's this character. Because don't forget, they become characters now. It's not like mm -hmm. the actual people if it's centered around a person or the people of a during a specific event. So that's something you have to remember. But I, I think what it comes down to, what people sometimes take issue with is the idea of authenticity. That's something you were like touching on there in terms of like, something a film like lincoln right the authenticity that that right. film like is trying to portray trying to mm -hmm. uh show or have audiences experiences of well i never saw lincoln but like right it comes down to a question of like authenticity yeah. 
that some people want, some people don't want. Yeah, no, I, here, okay. I, I think I think that's a good point. I, I'll also add to that this idea that um, in the case of the, and this was something that I thought was well argued in another one of the videos that you sent me, which was that certain historical dramas, yeah. right? What they're, you know, the, the drama part is really important. This isn't a historical documentary, you know, this is a historical drama. And that basically what they're trying to do is fill in the gaps in history, yeah, right. So we have we have this timeline of events that happened, but it's that all the all the in between those those notches, you know, the, like if you look at a timeline and there, each notch represents a year. Well, you know, but in, what happened in between those historical events and what led up to them, and I mean, while I'm saying this, people get just as uh, defensive and just as um, sort of vigilant about when sort of fictional canons are messed with yeah right or even like in big comic book movies for example where people go well that doesn't make any sense because you know technically uh, natasha romanoff wasn't a part of shield at this point because she <laughs> couldn't have had this conversation you know yeah. um uh, uh but i i one thing one thing that i definitely do want to talk about even though uh, we might not be there yet sure no worries and, and it was it was you know the difference like i mentioned at the beginning the difference between inaccuracy and misinformation yes which I think is important. And I think that that's a, an issue also within how we record history as well. Of course. Right. Where history on, you know, this, it's a popular adage. It's a well-known adage that history is written from the point of view of the victors. Yes. Right. Uh, or the colonizers, you know, and, yep. and in Canada, we, we definitely have that problem ourselves with sure. how our history books reflect like first nations and stuff like that. But like, um, a, a good example of that, in my opinion, is a film that isn't super, I mean, like, I don't know how well known this, this, uh, this film is, uh, like it was popular, um, at the time, uh, but it, it's a film called U571. Oh, yeah. Oh, right? yeah. Is that Harrison Ford? Yeah. Uh, no, so that was uh, that was actually K nineteen, the Widowmaker. Oh, that's the one I'm thinking uh, which, of. Which was which was a Catherine Bigelow movie. No, oh, okay, um, but I remember the film, but I can't remember who's in it. I did I never seen it, but I remember. Yeah. So so U five seven one came out in two thousand, I yeah. think, and it was um, it starred uh, Matthew McConaughey, um, Bill Paxton was in it. Um, who else was in it? Uh, oh, I think John Bon Jovi had a role in it. Um, <laughs> Harvey Keitel was definitely in it. Yeah. Um, anywho, and so it was a movie that is set during uh, the Second World War. Yes. And I should have checked this at the beginning. I'm not sure if uh, at the beginning they have that, you know, that that title card that says based on true events or whatever. Yeah. I don't remember if if they actually put that in the movie, but in any case. Um, see, that's a movie that is trying to tell, a hist uh, is trying to tell an authentic story. Yes. And you can tell that they, it's all about, basically, for those of you who haven't seen the movie, the movie is about an American mission to try and, and steal, to try to recover a German Enigma coding machine. Right. Right. So that the allies could then start to figure out how do you break that code um and so the all the action it's a submarine movie and it's an american submarine that it you know disguises itself as a german sub in order to meet 
with, uh, with a, a German submarine that's been critically damaged and they're racing against the other German subs that are actually gonna go there to help them because they've intercepted a transmission or whatever. Um, and so there's a ticking clock element and then everything goes wrong and blah, 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 but they do successfully recover um, the, the enigma. Now, the problem that a lot of people had with that movie is the problem that a lot of people in Europe have with how Americans remember history, yes. right? Where you go, you know, oh, I'm, from a North American point of view, you know, America, it was, it was America's war. America entered the war, kicked ass, and then yeah. won the war. They did everything. No they one else was everything. there. Yeah, which, was, which couldn't be farther from the truth because America entered the war late. The only the basically was it was Great Britain that kept, uh, you know, the fight uh, going. That kept the fight going. That kept the Nazis from claiming the entirety of Europe. Um, and you know, this was this was a global affair. And then eventually, eventually, what really ended the war was the Russians got involved. And then it was a there was no turning back. You know, and of course, you know, you could say about Harry S. Truman, whatever, uh, bombing Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and that, the yeah. The impact that that had, of course, it's a different conversation. Uh, but in any case, but that just to interrupt real quickly. That's what I was saying there about like the audience expectations, right? So if mm-hmm. you're doing an American-centered film, your audience is probably going to want to hear about all the good right. Americans did during you know this pre- yeah. specific, no, specific it, event. Here's here's the really here's I love that point because the, the truth is that Americans like have their famous. Uh, World War II battles. Yep. Right. Yep. It had you know uh, D Day, and it had um, you know the the you know like Saving Private Ryan. You go like Saving Private Ryan. That was an American battle. Those were American troops who landed on the beaches at Normandy. Like we get it. That's a that's a well done movie. Uh, whereas this specific one, yeah, like this idea that it was Americans that you know that got uh, their hands on the Enigma machine and somehow they're the ones who sort of broke the code eventually. I know that there's like a title card sequence at the end and just before the credits that explains some of the history behind it, but it's so misleading because that whole aspect, everything that happened with the Enigma was the British. Okay. It, was, it, was, it, was, it was British agents who managed to secure the Enigma. Uh, or at least one of them, you know, uh, and then it was a British man called Alan Turing who broke the code using, you know, basically what was the first mechanical computer. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people and that movie was controversial at the time because a lot of people in Great Britain and in Europe were going, that's total horseshit. That stuff never happened. You know, mm-hmm. like it, it's possible that there is a, you know, a boat, uh, a U-boat called U-571 that had an Enigma machine. And the Americans might have sunk it or something like that. But that is actively that that is actively sort of putting uh, false information okay. out there. It's it's misinforming the public, right? That's not a historical inaccuracy. Yeah. That's just like outright misinformation to try to, you know, trump up, you know, the 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 United States's role in the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Um and I find that I find that more, you know, potentially like more egregious and more frustrating. Like, I don't think that that's necessarily okay because the U.S. had its own battles that you can sort of fictionalize and and dramatize, I should say. Yeah. Um, But to sort of to try to say like, oh, no, 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 we we did that and we were heroes here and we also did that. When you really didn't, that it was 
because of the work and the sacrifice of an, of other people. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That becomes kind of problematic to me. And that's where I start to roll my eyes and I start to go like, even though, because U571 in a lot of ways is a well-constructed movie and it's an entertaining movie. It really, it genuinely is a depressing but entertaining movie. And there's a lot of cool scenes in there, especially if you love submarine movies. Yeah. But that otherwise, if you're someone who's capable of critical thought, like it really bothers you because you start to go, this is part of that kind of manifest destiny. It's kind of like more propagandistic there. Exactly. Right. And that's the problem, right? Where it's like, it's not actually trying to appeal to anybody's brain. Like it's directly trying to appeal to people's like sense of pride. Yeah. Um, no, no, I understand that. That makes sense. That actually brings me to another point uh, that I had there. Audiences, yeah, will rely on these type of films for like information. Yes. Right. So people yes. will lazily take take U five seven one for example, or you could take look at a film like Braveheart, watch it, and think, oh, this is what yeah. happened. This these are the actual events that I am watching. And so yeah. for someone like me, I'm like, you shouldn't expect a film to teach you history. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. Like, I understand what you're saying in terms of disinformation or being more propagandistic or anything like that. Like, that is a valid concern. That's something we'll get into a little bit later when we talk about, like, what responsibilities filmmakers have when they're making yeah. a, a film or a television show or whatever piece of media that you're creating. I think you do have some responsibilities uh, there. I don't, I don't think it's free reign. But before we get to that people will use these things to like learn or to, yeah. to, to lazily use them to make assumptions about specific events or specific peoples and stuff like along those lines. So yeah, you brought it up there with uh, U571. Like I mentioned Braveheart, entertaining movie. Like I like Braveheart. I haven't seen yeah. it in a long time. Good movie. A lot of stuff. That's not exactly how it went down. But a, to me, that's a great example, yeah. But to me, that's okay. Like, there's one battle there. I always remember this because I was watching someone talking about the historical inaccuracies in the film. And one of them was like the Battle of Sterling Bridge, which in the film famously does not take place at a bridge. It takes place like on a field. But something like that, I'm like, Who it's, gives not, a shit? it's not a big deal. Yeah. It's not a big deal. Uh, oh, can, I, can, I, can I jump in here? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Go, go for it. Go for can, it. Can I just say, it's like, it's the difference between people going, it's a difference between saying, man, Indiana Jones and, and the, the arc of, and the, and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, didn't portray Nazi movement troops accurately yeah. versus, oh, another Steven Spielberg movie, Saving Private Ryan, didn't get this and this and that done, you know, done properly. Yeah. You know, like, yes, one is set in a historical, is a period piece. Yes. Right. But then the other is a, a dramatized historical film and the two aren't at all the same. And, I, and again, I totally agree that. And I think Braveheart fits yeah. into that kind of category because so much of William Wallace at this point is, you know, near myth, you yeah. know, um, and it and and you're right that this this uh, this expectation that we have to just like, oh, no, 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 like. Totally. Like I saw the last crusade. I totally know, you know, <laughs> yeah. that, uh, that, you know, Germans were doing this and doing that. Usually how I approach this kind of subject is I'm thinking along the lines, like a film should inspire you to look into the specific event. So yeah. like basically you have to go and then do the research and see what actually happened. 
Mm-hmm. So like around this capture of this Enigma device, like if it if it interests you, if that sparks some kind of like, you know, desire or impulse in you to be like, oh, wow, that was cool. I want to look more into it. And then, OK, you'll discover, oh, OK, maybe it was actually like more British focused or whatever around, you know, the, the capturing of this machine. That's to me like the only thing like you can really hope for in terms of like getting something out of it in terms of historical accuracy is like you need to go and then read because whenever because i like watching uh historical films or set during specific time periods because then i'm like if it's a subject that interests me it's like oh i want to learn more about it now i understand like not everyone is like that some people just watch the film and go okay and then think they have an understanding okay can i yes yes i i have a good example of i think that the, the that the really really great historical dramas um that we that we you know consider to be way more authentic and worth watching than others Mm -hmm. uh you know there's an argument to be made that they're just better made movies Mm -hmm. period Uh, but there's also an argument to be made where there are some filmmakers who will go oh i'm telling the story and it really doesn't matter because you know it's it's fiction i'm 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 telling fiction here and it's it's it doesn't matter toward directors that go yes we're not going to get all the details right but right now the most important thing is for that because even though i can't communicate a history lesson with this movie what i can communicate is how the people living through these events could have been feeling and thinking Yes. Right. And so I th- and I think that that's where historical dramas excel. And I think that's where they um, that's where they inspire that kind of interest. So if you were to take like a, an example that I've had in my mind since we started this conversation was the HBO program Chernobyl that okay. came out uh, two years ago, I think. Yeah. Um, have you have you watched that at all? No, I've heard it's good, but I have not watched it. Okay. So it's like super depressing, uh, you know, and it won't make you feel super happy. Um, But it was a show that was really, really well made. um, And that in many ways doesn't reflect um, his history properly uh, in the same way that sometimes it does. Like, so for example, one of the things that it does really, really well is to sort of present an example of what might be the chain of events of like the human chain of events that leads to an event like this. Right. And so the, what is communicating there is that the, what happened in Chernobyl wasn't just a mechanical failure that deep down, it was based on the underlying issue of what humans were doing at this time. And that's why it's important to focus on those humans. And then at the end of the series, there is like a like a little montage sequence where the show creators do kind of point out the inaccuracies that they've done. Like, for example, there's a character in the in uh, in the TV show that didn't exist in real life, but was a composite character that represented the team of scientists that would have been present at that time. Yeah. And of course, that makes sense. From a from a movie making from a TV show making perspective, where you cannot have thirteen characters, no one's going to remember who is who. You're going to be like, who's that again? Exactly, and and also it sort of defeats the purpose of 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 the show in in the sense of you're just like, no, no, we need to focus on the main players, and that you know that that the scientists who are who are working day and night to try to figure out what the hell is going on, that you can sort of get that through these other characters. 
um, but that it was important that this sort of that the show present a kind of di- a didactic kind of dynamic that mm-hmm. would have maybe occurred in that room where you have people with a thought and then a counter thought and you know that kind of dynamic that happens when you're when you're solving these kinds of problems and I think that that's one where that's a show where even if it wasn't the most historically accurate it was accurate enough to be successful but more importantly what it conveyed more than anything was the human loss and all this and the people who suffer through all this that this isn't just some sort of abstract thing for north americans you know for us canadians going oh yeah there was a meltdown in the 80s and yeah. you know it was kind of serious and they're like no 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 like people like innocent people people who weren't you know soviet spies and they didn't work for gorbachev and you know they were just working at nine to five as a school teacher and they had kids and they got really, really, really sick and those and and some and they died, you know? Yeah. And like that's that's a that's a that's a piece that is sort of never reflected in history books, but that film can do really, really well. And that's what inspires that kind of feelings of compassion, of of understanding and of and of making you want to go and look for those details. Yeah, exactly, right. Because yeah. you you can understand the human costs between and within in an event like that, and I think that you know, and uh, interestingly enough, so like this show on the HBO show was a predominantly British show, so it was predominantly British actors and European actors who were in uh, that program. So I yeah. think it was co-produced between HBO and Sky or something like that, which is a beautiful uh, a British um, network. Yep, but I'm not sure about that. But in any case, the uh, the Russian response was, oh, it's totally inaccurate. It's all it's doing is just propaganda. It's trying to make Russians look bad. And we're going to make our own Chernobyl show that's going to show the true story. Okay. Right. And that, I think, is really, really interesting uh, in how that's playing out. Because, uh, of course, it's not a critique of Russia. If anything, it's a critique of the Soviet Republic, which doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. You know? It's still interesting because, of course, the whole the whole TV show is trying. What it, one of the things that is trying to express is this kind of need to represent the Soviet Republic as uh, an atomic superpower that can do no wrong is what drove, you know, is what set things in motion that allowed for Chernobyl to happen. Right. Yeah. That they needed to do things cheap, that they needed to do things quickly, that they needed to get to the finish line first at all costs. And that in order to do that, they had to suppress scientific information and they had to cut important safety corners, right? Yeah. And, and, then, and then you have this new, you know, the new Russian Republic that's going like, they're insulting Russians <laughs> and you're going, no, what it's trying to say is the like, The is, opposite. Which, yeah, and it's interesting that, you know, that this, the cycle kind of continues. Um, well, yeah, that's, that's, what I, that's what I mean when I say like, you know, who's, who's the audience there? And what is it you're trying to tell? Right. Mm -hmm. So like all those like facts that you just listed about like, okay, how the Soviet Republic was trying to go about building up this image of how powerful it is and how invincible it is, how it could do no wrong, how it's great. And it's trying to like build all these things quickly and rush everything through. Right. And that's what kind of like led to this kind of disaster. Just like one example amongst, I'm sure, other things. Not that this exclusive to Soviet Russia happens countries all over the world but listing that out as facts that that you read in like a book 
you don't necessarily get the emotional weight in a way yeah. that you can tell with like a fictionalized version or dramatized version of events that can kind of make you understand perhaps in a way that a history book could not, or taking yeah. a history course could not make you understand. I, and unfortunately, like that's the role that a teacher would, would play in real life. Potentially, it depends. Right? To try to contextualize right. that history. Right, but just reading cold hard facts not that it can't be interesting, not that there's no enjoyment to be had from reading history right. books or whatever, but you're not getting the full picture. Basically. Yeah. Like there's a, every form of media has its, you know, benefits and it's um, things that it lacks yeah. in it. Right. So a movie or a TV show like uh, Chernobyl could maybe, you know, highlight some of these issues in a way, like I said, that it can't uh, in a book. Can I ask you a question, Pablo? Sure. Go ahead. Do you think it makes a difference how recent an event that's being like adapted or covered is? Like, do you find that there's more leniency to things, to events that happened 300, 400, a oh. thousand years ago? Oh, definitely. Compared yeah. to something that happened five years ago? Yeah, because something that happened more recently, people are around and they know and they can comment on and they can talk back and they can be more critical and they can offer like insights and say, it's like when you do like a biopic on someone and their family members are still alive, right? They can say, oh, we don't like the portrayal of whoever the person is because it showed him as like being a drug addict and blah, blah, blah. When really there was this other stuff that was going on and they can like, you know, dispute the facts or or like, like I said, because people will take this as fact, they will just rely lazily. It's not necessarily a good or a bad thing, but sometimes you just watch it and you just take it as is. You take it at face value. People will take it at face value and won't investigate further. Which is fine. Not everyone's going to go and search deeper to see, oh, is this really what transpired? Yeah. But if you're taking an event that happened like 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, no one's around to, to remember it. You may have some people who study history as like their profession or have a super huge interest in or like history nerds, history buffs. They may complain, but you have to remember is that's a minority of people. Most people aren't going aren't going to give a shit. They're going to be like whatever. And the people who are producing a story centered around an event or a person that existed thousands of years ago, 500 years ago, they know that. They know most people no one's going to give a shit whatever. Small p- amount of it's it's funny because it's kind of like if you um just to go on a small little tangent here, if you look at like in the in the tech world for like let's say like for cell phones, right? A lot of people are into new technologies that come out for like cell phones, new phone models, new iPhones that come out. I think they're just like announced like last week. One of the common complaints, people who are super into tech and like computers, uh, PS5, the new Xbox, whatever it is, they'll be like, oh, it doesn't have this, doesn't have these specs. So the new iPhone doesn't have this amount of RAM or doesn't have this kind of camera or doesn't have this functionality. It's just like, only you care about that. Only whoever's extremely <laughs> invested in, in those minute details care. General audience, most people who buy an iPhone, just for an example, don't care. So it's the same thing like for, for uh, you know, history on film. If it's an event that happened a long time ago, no one knows the details. They may know vaguely, okay, yeah, I have some idea. You know, let's yeah, the say, stakes are lower. Yeah, let's say it's like about Alexander the Great, right? Yeah. You had that, um, what, Oliver Stone film? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Alexander, yeah. right? Like, unless I'm someone who studies like ancient Greek, ancient Macedonian history, and I know the life of Alexander the Great very well, and I could point out all the flaws, no one's no one, no one's going to care outside of that. No, 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 exactly. People give a shit as to if it's a good movie or not. 
as your goal as a filmmaker, though, my goal is to make a film that entertains you. Yeah. More so than like getting the exact is, history. Yeah. Is a delivery correct. mechanism for for history. Because like I'm trying to tell like a story that satisfies you or that generates something inside or to make money, depending on the scale of this film, like what it is, is it blockbuster summertime film, or is it something like or maybe I'm trying to do something more artistic. So maybe I'm trying to showcase like emotions in ways that you can't visualize yeah. through text. Right. Yeah. So I'm trying to play on that. And that's kind of some of the things you might see in terms of the visual representations that that appear before you on screen. So those might be my motivations more so than the finer details of a person's life or a specific event. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to highlight. So it always comes down to what is what are you trying to say like as a filmmaker and who is your audience that you're trying to say it to? Now, if you're portraying a specific event, yes, I as someone who watches film and enjoys different different types of film, different genres of film, like yeah, if you're taking a historical character, historical event, and this could be something more recent, 5, 10 years, 500 years, whatever it is, yeah, do I want you to get the broad strokes right? Yeah. Unless it's but even then that comes down to how are you selling this film? Because sometimes people might just use it as an anchor point, a specific time or a specific event, but then go on to something else different yeah. and, you know, bring in anachronisms and different things like that because the story they're trying to tell isn't about recreating a specific event, but it's trying to tell some other emotional story using this kind of like as our framing device, basically, as yeah, our starting was, off point. Exactly. It's like, um, you know, if, like, let's say Sofia Coppola took the same treatment and approach she used for her Marie Antoinette yes. movie to, let's say, a movie about, like, the Boston bombing, you know, or something like that. Yeah. And then you go, people would get pissed off because, you know, this isn't, this is a, this is a personal story that isn't just available to everyone to, like, usurp for their own, um, you know, whatever agenda or whatever other stories they have, be, they, they, they want to express because they're survivors. There are people that are still impacted by these, by these stories. So I think, yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a good point. I, you know what, if you, do you want something, I, I do want to talk about this. I don't think that there's an interesting point about this, but it is something that bothers me and sure. it's something that I want to talk to you about. Yeah, go for it. Which is the, Okay. I don't think I'm the only one who went and saw David Fincher's um, The Social Network. Yes. And then walked out of there thinking like, man, that Mark Zuckerberg, he's, man, is he smart. He's like a Bond <laughs> villain. Like, he's so close to being a Bond villain. Yeah. And then going to YouTube and then, and then watching any, literally any interview he has ever given in his life and gone in your mind here. Wah, wah. <laughs> Where like he sounds like such a moron when yeah. he talks. He sounds like I mean a moron is a strong word. He sounds, well, he sounds like a goober, basically. Yeah, he sounds like a robot. Yeah. He sounds like you know, like everybody's met someone who's on the spectrum, and then you go, okay, this guy might be on the autistic spectrum, or he just he doesn't express himself properly. Right. Mm -hmm. Like there are some older interviews where he expresses himself like a college kid. And this would have been, you know, at the same age, at the same time as, you know, Jesse Eisenberg's version of the characters. And, and then you go like, this is not the same person, like at all. They're not even trying like, you know, he's not even trying to 
like this, but that's the difficult thing. He's not even trying to like impersonate or to incarnate, you know, because that's um, the thing. Like, would you want to watch that Mark Zuckerberg on film that you paid for for like two hours? Exactly. Right? You wouldn't. You absolutely wouldn't. It would be it would be terrible. No one wants to listen that's, to Mark Zuckerberg. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. It's like comes down to audience expectations. Because if you wanted yeah. the accurate Mark Zuckerberg, because I actually watched a video that I it was not one of the things I sent you, but now that you bring it up, I it's like clicks in my head now. Oh, that makes sense. That would have been a good one uh, to send you because they kind of talk about this idea of like when you fictionalize, uh, you know, someone like. Uh, it doesn't have to be a historical person like Mark Zuckerberg. It could just be like uh, anything kind of like set in in a like realistic type world there. But you have, yeah, someone like, because uh, it's Aaron Sorkin, right? Who wrote this? Yes, it is Aaron Sorkin. Yeah. Right. So he has his way of like building characters and he has his goals as like a screenwriter. And then mm-hmm. you have David Fincher. He has his goals as a director. And you have, um, what's the guy's name? You just said his name. Jesse actor, Eisenberg. Jesse Eisenberg. It slowed my mind for a second. He has his goals as an actor, right? Yeah. And then obviously as an audience member, you have your goals of what you want to get out of watching a film. And so it's not always conducive to have it like exactly how he he was. No, but you see, that's the problem. But that's a that's a fundamental problem because then you, mm-hmm. then you go like, well, then we can't if we can't if we're if we're stuck having to tell the true story then we can't make the movie that we want to make, you know? And I can understand why some people would say, well, then don't fucking make that movie. Make another movie, man. You can do or that as an option. You don't have to do something. Yeah, because like it, it is it is a little frustrating. And I can understand why it would be frustrating if, um, you know, you, you are watching a movie about your life yeah. Right. And you're still alive. That's what's different about this film a little bit is because he's still alive and he's still young, you yeah. know, and and then you're or, you know, like that Edward Snowden movie or the Julian Assange movie or yeah. the whatever, you know, all these movies that have come out recently, all these uh, biopics that have come out recently about people that are still alive and not only still alive, but like still working in the field, like still very much a presence in still the world. That, yeah. Yeah. Still active. And you're you're sitting there and you're watching you're like, like this is not me. I never said that. I never, you know, like this. Um, the fact that the social network totally made up this character of Gabrielle Albrecht or whatever, you know, that girl that dumped him at the beginning. Oh, that's his motivation, right? Because yeah, in our story, though, we ha- he has to have some kind of motivation. Whereas in real life, you don't really need that. It could just be a thought <laughs> that comes to you one day. No, and it's no. like, hey, I wanna, I wanna it, do it, this. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, and like it's it's a it's, you know, he was a creep with her and then she dumped his ass and then he was an even bigger vengeful creep, you know, creating this website uh, that compared, you know, uh, yeah. different women. Base at, Raider. Were, yeah. I don't know what it was actually called, but that's what I'm going to call it. Something right like now. that. Right. Yeah. And, and then uh, and then it was his motivation for creating Facebook and then the movie ends. And he sends her a friend request and he's refreshing the page, you know, to see if if she's accepted. Yeah, it, it gives him like this tragic figure yeah. kind and, of positioning. And, yeah. And then you're going, that's total horseshit. That's totally made up. Or like, no, no, you know, like, you know, it might have happened. And then you're like, dude, that's a big difference. Like, that's a huge, that's a huge thing to just be like, artistic license. This is fiction. You know, we can do what you want. And you're like, dude, the guy's still alive. Like, <laughs> is still very much a thing like it's it's strange this isn't hit ancient history for people 
people are still living those lives. And I can understand why. And also, you know, but again, that goes to the, the, the topic that you want to talk about, about the, the, you know, the responsibility that, that filmmakers have when they're making working on these kinds of. Projects. Oh, yes, we will get to that. But before we do, because this is going to tie into responsibility of filmmakers, I, do, I want to take it to a, a, a couple of other places before we end. But I do want to take it to documentary uh, film because documentary is something that, to me anyways, and based on my, like, what I've seen, uh, just how people react to documentaries in the, in the, in the world, out in the ether there, is uh, documentaries seem, seem to get a pass on this kind of thing mm. because it's a documentary. So people take it as true, quote unquote true, if it's in a documentary more than i than i think they would in a um narrative type film so the one example i sent you there and i'll put post this in the show notes for those of you listening is a little video that kind of talks about this in terms of like tiger king which is the netflix documentary series i know it's not a uh, movie but it's a close enough it's a television film type event 10 part series did you watch tiger king I did, yeah. Yeah, okay. So, like I said, documentary, before we we talk into the specifics of that, though, documentary, like I said, uh, tends to get a pass because people accept it as being true because it's not, it's supposed to be real events, real life. So this is historical, but not in the sense of, like, history. I don't think anyone's ever going to read about this kind of story in in a history textbook, but it is telling a story that is, quote-unquote, true. So, for me, that's history. Mm -hmm. Because... It is saying that it's telling a story about real events and like real people. So yeah. The history in that kind of sense. But ha- have you ever been a part of a documentary? Have you ever made documentary film? I have not. No, I've never. Uh, I mean, I've done the, uh, I've, I've been involved in um, like crime reenactment shows, um, okay. which are kind of docu-series. Kind of. Um, yeah. It's just because like when you do a documentary, I don't think people realize how much goes into making a doc. I think a lot yeah. of people think it's just, oh, okay, you show up, you interview the person, and you, because you see the talking head mm. in the final product, but you don't see all that goes around into it. Because, like I said, people view Doc yeah. as though it is reality, as though this is telling real life. The cinema verite fly on the wall. We are the observer watching what's unfolding in front of us. And you see this, like, with reality TV, it uses that yes. kind of thing, cinema verite yeah. as well. But the thing is, with with documentary, it's just as much as narrative uh, con- in terms of construction as a narrative film. Because when you do doc, and I've done like uh, when I was at Concordia, we, you know, we'd make small five minute docs. And so I imagine this is times 10 what I'm about to tell you for like a feature length doc. You have to film hours upon hours upon hours upon hours of footage of people. So you can spend like two weeks, you're filming like all the time. But then when you're going to construct the film, you have to find storylines in whatever it is you filmed to tell a story that makes sense. So you still have to construct your narrative within the doc. And you talk to your interview subjects. Uh, You know, you discuss things with them. So you you say, oh, this is what we're focusing on. This is what we want to do. Can we get you to do... Like, you, you instruct them to do things. Like, whenever you're watching a documentary and they cut away while they're talking to a person performing a certain event, let's say someone, a painter who's painting, and they're, and they're doing that. Or someone cooking in a, in a kitchen. Like they're asked to, hey, can we film you doing this? Because you need, as the filmmaker, you need stuff to cut away to. Because no one's going to watch a two-hour documentary or 
a 10-part documentary series of someone talking for those 10 straight hours or two straight hours. So it, a lot goes into it and music that's played and juxtaposition of images. Like I said, when you cut away from when someone's talking, what are you going to show? So when they show you pictures, all that is out there. So it's just as much of a construct as a narrative film, probably even more so because you have to pull this out because you have an idea of what it, story it is you're trying to tell. Like in Tiger King, right? They The filmmakers initially wanted to tell a story about the exotic pet business and while they were doing that they discovered oh a lot of these people are more interesting than the animals and that's where we get into like i said the construct so now they're they're focusing on the characters and not whatever their initial idea was but this comes out from talking to people and then from watching the footage you got to pick what do you include in the film what do you not include in the film and that's what that's why i want to bring documentary style film into this because it's something i think that usually gets overlooked in terms of historical accuracy i don't know if it's more insidious or or less than in sort of traditional fictional film but you know sort of an author's bias yeah in documentary and how like you know you see you you know we know we're now much more aware of how bias can skew facts yes right and that all of a sudden, what should be, you know, like what should be a fact is somehow open to interpretation. You're mm-hmm. like, well, no, that's totally misunderstanding the nature of what facts are. You yes. know what I mean? I do consider Tiger King to be a bit of an outlier in almost every respect. <laughs> like there's something so much that's uh, lightning in a bottle with that documentary where, uh, and I, I think so, uh, a, a part of that documentary that I don't think gets dis- talked a lot about. Yes is that a lot of not only does a lot of you know some of the some of the footage but also some of the uh, some of the point of views on that that specific narrative comes from a man who is making a reality tv show about joe exotic mm-hmm. and in some respects tiger king is a documentary on a reality on a, on a reality show that almost happened about joe exotic yeah right because so much about that about the documentary focuses on Joe's playing up to the camera and, you know, developing his cult following. And, you know, it was all of those activities that got him in trouble, right? Because if he didn't have that platform, if he didn't have that TV studio, if he didn't have a producer that was backing him up, then he wouldn't have necessarily needed to breed all those tiger cubs in order to fund his lawsuits. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so there's this there's this cause and effect that that the the which the root of it is he developed a persona the second that he saw himself on screen, yeah, right, and and we're looking at this almost this documentary is examining more than anything the creature that came the second that Rick Kirkham or Kirkman or whatever his name was, yeah, the guy who used to work for Fox who when he first saw Joe Exotic and said, man, like. I got to make a reality TV show about this guy. <laughs> yeah. And at this point, it's not a secret that reality TV, that the, that the reality is it's totally pseudo reality. Yeah. And yeah. it's transparently manipulative. Now, you know, where you're, you're constantly aware more so than we used to be, you know, of like, you know, someone says something and then they cut to a reaction shot and they're going like, man, that reaction shot was probably to something that was totally different. That could have been, that could have, it, it could have, they could have not been in the same room together when yeah. both of those things happened, right? 
Yeah. Um, and and so that's where I that's where I think that like I don't I don't see Tiger King operating as a documentary series. You know, okay. I see it I see it operating as a kind of reality show about a reality show bracket. Okay. You know. Yeah, I, uh, I I understand where you're coming from, but it's like you said at the beginning there. Uh, it also comes down to how it's marketed as, right? And it's presented to us yeah. as a documentary. I never thought yeah. of it as a reality show of a reality show, but that makes sense. But it is, it was or is positioned as a documentary. Yeah. And it's interesting. Like I said, a documentary is just as much as a narrative construct as a narrative yes. type film. Because part of what went into Tiger King is like a lot of uh, what the filmmakers chose to keep from the audience. So yeah. a lot of it, it has to do with Joe Exotic's personality himself. Like he's a huge freaking racist. Yes. Like yeah, they yeah, had yeah. to like cut out like all the times he's saying like N word and like yeah. disparaging like blacks and like non whites and stuff like that because like that would ruin the dynamic they have presented in the series of him against Carol Baskin because Carol yeah. Baskin is seen as like the enemy. And we can't have our protagonist in Joe Exotic as someone who's this like racist dude and, you know, how he actually treats the animals because what he was actually arrested for was like the abuse and mistreatment and killing of animals. And if you're around him 24-7 or almost filming this documentary, there's no way you didn't see any of that stuff. So that means you had to make the conscious choice to be like, well, no, because he's the protagonist in the story that we're telling, we have to cut that kind of stuff out. And speaking of Carol Baskin, like, I believe what I've read uh, certain interviews of her, she was saying that when they contacted her and asked her the interview questions, they didn't tell her this was what we were planning to do. They, They seemed to be more interested in, like, how they framed it to her was in how her operation worked. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you get that in documentary where the, the filmmakers will approach you or producers, whoever will approach you and say, oh, we want to ask you about this specific topic. This is the framework we're, we're thinking of using. And you're like, okay, cool. I'll talk to you about that. And then when you see the final product, you see they've taken what you said out of context, like you mentioned mm-hmm. with reaction shots, right? And musical cues mm-hmm. and photos that you show or b-roll of you doing certain activities sometimes that can be taken in a whole different context because whatever it is the filmmakers are trying to tell they will take that footage they have of you out of context to fit this new context now Mm. so it doesn't doesn't go with what your initial thought was or how you initially thought the interview was going to be or how it was going to be used so that's also like another problem that comes up. So that brings us to like, I guess, our final point of, of this topic here, which is like, what is your uh, responsibility as a filmmaker? Should I care at all when like constructing, whether it's a documentary about a specific event? Because, you know, people do what, like I said, people give documentary a lot of weight. You probably watch documentaries in, in high school, you know, nature docs, right? Mm-hmm. And it's taken to be seen as like a certain authoritative work right? Like planet earth, right? You, mm-hmm. you watch it and you'll accept it at face value because it looks like it knows what it's doing and what we're being shown is accurate. Or like in the case of a historical film about a specific person, about a specific event, what's my uh, role, what's my responsibility as a filmmaker and mm-hmm. being true 
are not being true or taking liberties like we talked about with the social network. Yeah. So where, where, where do my responsibility responsibilities lie as a filmmaker? That's such a tricky question because unfortunately very few filmmakers uh, are in a position where they, they have that kind of responsibility in the sense of nowadays, the more money is involved in the project, the more uh, a movie is made by committee. Yeah. You know, this, this notion, this conception that we have as directors being the be all and end all of creative decisions on any, any movie with a big enough budget. The second, basically the second that there are, uh, that there's a studio involved or there that, that there's enough investors involved that have clout. Um, this, that, that, that's the moment where a filmmaker, a director has very little to no creative control. You know, we've seen that happen in movies that are of a non-historical nature, you know, Zack Snyder's Justice League, David Ayer's Suicide Squad, you know, for example, where, you know, the, the, these movies were completely recut and reshot by the studio. Or sometimes right? they'll replace the director like uh, Ant-Man, yeah. right? supposed to be like edgar oh, Wright. Yeah. that's right yeah you want to do that and apparently for the han solo film wasn't wasn't they uh yeah that's a great those are two great points exactly they, yeah so it, i forget who the original yeah. directors were supposed to be for it, the han solo film. it was it was um lord and miller yeah that's it who did who did the lego movie and the spider-man into the spider-verse yeah yeah and then they didn't disney didn't like the tone that no, they were so going for and they're like, okay you're so gone. here's so here's what happened in both those cases, yeah. just as a small tangent. Yeah. It was Edgar Wright is used to having, is used to working with smaller budgeted movies, working in Great Britain and having a lot more uh, creative control. Yes. Right. A lot more creative control. That's what he's used to. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's very much more of an auteur than anything else. It just so happens that his, uh, that his authorship leads to really, really entertaining movie uh, movies and not bizarre. Yeah. Like, you know, like he's our, not outhouse film. Art that's right he's not werner herzog yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but but the approach is the same right yeah. um but the, when he was approached but of course working with a company like disney is not going to be the same thing and it takes a very specific kind of personality and charisma in order to negotiate any kind of creative control from uh from a, a, a mega corporation like disney like yeah. i would say that people who do that well are people like john favreau uh, and people like um, James Gunn. I think both yeah. of those filmmakers seem to be able to make it work for them. But with Edgar Wright, it didn't. They were they were they had a much more demanding timeline, and he wanted to make you know he wanted to finish his Cornetto trilogy. You know he wanted to do The World's End. Yeah. Um, and he also had different, very specific directions that he wanted to take this this movie and 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 marvel is like no it has to fit the mold the marvel mold of because it's a product at the end of the day it's a product and it has to fit with the other products that we're developing right because the person with the real creative control in the marvel universe is kevin kevin feige yeah um and so that you know uh, edgar wright was not having any of that and it sort of led to them going in a different direction but in the case of Chris Lord and Phil Miller, I think is what their names are for a Han Solo movie, it's actually the same thing that happened with Josh Trank's Fantastic Four yeah. at Fox, which also was a huge bump, um, was they went in and pitched a movie. Okay. They said, this is the Han Solo film that we want to do. 
this is the Fantastic Four film that I want to do. So Josh Trank pitched uh, David Cronenberg, a body horror uh, Fantastic Four movie because he was going like, no one likes the Fantastic Four. Yeah, he's like, no one likes the Fantastic Four. They're boring. (laughs) And their powers are fucking creepy. Like, they're pa- one of the one of a guy is an elastic guy. The other guy's made out of rocks, and then another dude sets himself on fire. Like yeah. these are not these are strange abilities for for human beings, and that's the story that I want to tell. And then Fox was like, "Great, yeah, let's do it." Someone at Fox gave him their green light, gave him money, and then the second that they started to see the film come together, they got cold feet, and they said, "Shit, this does not appeal to the general populace. We have to shit can this." Yeah. And they, you know, the studio got up in its business and re-edited and reshot until we have the mess that we have there. And it's the same that happened with the Han Solo movie where they Disney for a second there was terrified of what was happening, where they weren't making money on their investment with Star Wars or their projected returns on yeah. Star Wars. Yeah. And so they had a moment of going, well, why don't we just try to make a good movie? And so they they give it to someone that had or uh group of creators the duo that had a really interesting idea for a movie and they said you know let's give this a try why don't you go make your movie and then they made they started making the movie they that the disney bought and then disney got cold feet and said no we can't you know this is a really expensive property we can't just let anybody fool with it and so what they did is they shit canned those two directors and after the in movie in was like 70 percent shot ron howard and then they and then they brought in ron yeah. howard who would do what they told him to do and that's when we got solo which was <laughs> was was not a success was not a commercial know. success by disney standards especially by by the time that all the money they'd spent um so i mean of course we're getting a little bit carried away with a little uh, little side tangent but we appreciate side side tangents on on this program so it's all good but bringing it back though because the point you bring up is still relevant because it is something you do have to contend with even if you're doing narrative fiction doing a documentary uh doing historical piece whether it's like about an event or person or just set in a historical time period it's still something like your responsibilities yep. as a filmmaker. So for someone like Disney, our responsibility is, hey, we need something that makes money. I don't want to yes. get into experimenting. And st- I need something safe and secure. And it's Star Wars. So people need to go and watch it. That's all I care about. So yep. when you're doing a, a historical film, it, yeah, the size of the film dictates. Uh, will, will, the, yeah. Yeah. Uh, studio yep. involvement or what the producers want. You know, but as a film creator, like as a director, someone who's a cinematographer, someone who does sound, because there's so many aspects that go into it, you know, costuming, uh, you know, because if you look at something like Mad Men TV show, their set design, their costumes, mm. like little props and stuff. Like I remember reading they had a thing that the ice cubes for their drinks, the way they made them back like in the 60s is mm. not the same. You wouldn't find ice cubes like that now. So they had to track down some, like some device that made ice. Yeah. Right. So, like, how how far are you going to go with these details? And then okay. that's just the small details. Then how far are we going to go with like the actual story? Like yeah. when we said like uh, making composite characters or making like a love interest or maybe we're going to do something that's more emotionally driven. Yeah. Right. So as a filmmaker, like, what what's my responsibility? Like for me, like I said earlier, it's more based on like, can I inspire you to be interested? in this subject for some people it might be like i don't give a shit let's just make a movie and i need to make money on it yeah well here let, let's put it this way i think you said it best uh, you know half an hour half an hour ago <laughs> when you said 
when he said, listen, I just care that the broad strokes are there. Yeah. Right. And I think a lot of people feel that way. I think, and it also depends on the subject matter, right? Mm-hmm. There's some subject matters that are relatively speaking inconsequential. It doesn't mean that people aren't going to get upset that if you don't get the details right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I do think that to a, to, to a certain extent, if you're, you know, if you're entering into, if, if it's always the same thing, right? Yeah. So it's like, no one gives a shit, for example, that let's go back to popular culture. No one gives a shit that Guardians of the Galaxy isn't comic accurate because guess what? Guardians of the Galaxy, the comic book, wasn't successful. You know, it wasn't one of Marvel's, you know, A tier, even B tier comic storylines. Yeah, exactly. So no one gives a shit. Just the fact that, and even fans of Guardians of the Galaxy at this point, most of them, I would say, are saying, oh, he made it interesting so that other people want to get into it and I'll get more Guardians of the Galaxy stuff. So that's a win. Yeah. Right. But you take a movie like Star Trek, let's say the like the 2009 J.J. Abrams Star Trek, and then you have a whole bunch of Trekkies going, what the fuck, dude? Like, this is not Star Trek. Like, you've turned Star Trek into Star Wars. Yeah. And then and then the argument goes, no, you just made fucking Star Trek interesting to people. Yeah. And they're like, no, you don't get it. Like, we already have Star Wars. We have that. What we don't have is Star Trek, right? And so I think that there's an element of that when it comes to documentary filmmaking, right? Where you're like, it's like, it would be, you know, and, and the different categories of like the different flavors of documentary filmmaking, where people don't necessarily compare a Ken Burns documentary yeah. to a Michael Moore documentary. And yet, they're in the same genre and ostensibly should um, should should you know follow the same rules yeah. or the same guidelines, but they don't at all, right? Michael Moore's are heavily editorialized, uh, you know that you know he's he's even though he tells a really really good story and what he's very very good at is communicating the stakes of an issue to people, mm-hmm. you know he's. He is, in a lot of ways, manipulating the the, the facts to suit his mm-hmm. his narratives, and sometimes more successfully than others. Uh, and then in a Ken Burns documentary, I mean, it's basically a two hour long slideshow, right? And yeah. that's not that's not attracting the same kind of audiences, and it's not it doesn't have necessarily you know he's covering like oh the history of baseball or you know <laughs> the history of jazz musicians in the united states it's not the same stakes it's not the same stories it doesn't require the same amount of um you know it's like saying it's like saying like uh you know like oh you know his you know you have to hold the same uh the same guide the same rule if you, you need to hold him responsible you know to the ken burns jazz documentaries as you do to the don Cheadle miles davis movie biopic yeah you're going no no no. those are two very very separate things but in terms of the like if we're going to go back to the question which is what is the responsibility of the the filmmaker yeah i think the second that you decide to tell a story that happened in real life right that actually happened that these people actually existed that there are people alive today that may have known them you have a great amount of responsibility to respect that story Mm -hmm. you know I think that if you're, especially in terms of documentary filmmaking, I think you do have a responsibility to tell that story accurately because you have chosen to do so. You have, you have, you're deciding to put a spotlight 
on this issue, right? Or on this story or on this event, right? Mm -hmm. That was your, this is, this wasn't like a freelance gig. You know, this isn't a lot of documentaries are much lower budget or their budgets are different, right? Because uh, a documentary, a good documentaries usually take three or four or five years to make. Yeah. And there's no way that a Hollywood movie could sustain a three to four to five year production scale. Like it would bankrupt any studio. Right. Mm-hmm. But I mean, if, if you're, if you're a, so, you know, a filmmaker, fil- documentary filmmaking is often driven by passion for a subject, for an event, for a people, for a culture, or by a need to uh, bring awareness to an issue. Right. right? So, you know, like a, a documentary on, uh, like the uh, the uh, the documentary on James Baldwin, for example. Yeah. You know, which is uh, titled "I Am Not Your Negro," and like that is that is by all accounts a fantastic documentary, and I think it shows in a documentary like that where the filmmakers were aware of the of the magnitude of the responsibility that they had to do this man justice. You right. know. And I do, I do think that that's important. I, I would say that would, that's my two cents. My two cents is that, yeah, that there are to varying degrees, like anything, like I said at the beginning, it is a spectrum. Yep. I think that there are some, like, here's the thing. No one, no one gives a shit that there has never been a historically accurate Vlad the Impaler film, <laughs> you know, and that they go, you know, Dracula doesn't get the historical character that was, you know, Vlad Tepish or whatever. No one gives a shit, right? Yeah. And it's like for the same reason that no one really gives a shit that there is that there has or hasn't been a historically accurate Genghis Khan movie. Like you just we just don't care. You know, yeah. it's there you know, there what what people would matter is, oh, is it a good movie? Like is it worth watching? Like th- is the time in any way interesting to want to, you know, it you know journey to mm-hmm. um or you know like a napoleon like is this a historically accurate you know people don't care does the filmmaker have a responsibility to get certain things right i think so i think there is a certain responsibility a certain onus on you to sort of get the details yeah, right but that's I think not so because like i said uh, sorry to interrupt there but yeah no, because people will take what you do at face value Yes. Right. They will use that as a source of information. Like one thing I was thinking of is like if you're someone who just watched black uh, black exploitation films from the 70s oh, yeah. and then you're yeah, just that's like, the- that's what black culture is. Because I'm not going to go out and like re- research it. I just think that's w- w- what it is. Like uh, you saw Dolomite is my name. Oh, yeah, I did. Uh, good oh. movie. Eh? It's, it's like something like movie. that. Like, yeah. So obviously you want to be true. To what was it, Rudy Ray Moore? Yes, so like what yeah. he was doing, you want to portray that accurately, but you know, at the same time, like you want to make sure that you're not just leaning too heavily on like negative black stereotypes. Because someone may watch yeah. that film and just be like, Oh, this is what black this was this is black culture. This is, this is how black people act. Like, oh, okay. So yeah, you do want to be respectful to your subject matter. I think that you have at least that bare minimum responsibility as a filmmaker yeah. to do that, to at least do some justice and like take it seriously the whatever it is you're trying to create whatever story it is you're trying to tell because like i said people will just use that as the reference point for a certain subject matter and take it at face value and won't go in further so you as a filmmaker you should be aware of that and try to mitigate that 
See, that is such a good example. Um, Dolomite is my name is such a good example, Pavlo, because in that movie, they do kind of, you know, in that movie, it documents, uh, quote unquote, the the production of uh, the first Dolomite movie. Yes. But they show scenes yeah, that exactly. they're shooting that are actually from the human torpedo. Yeah. Right. That are from the sequel. Yeah. And you're going, but that's not historically accurate. And then you're going, absolutely. You're 100 percent right. But it doesn't affect the um, the overall quality of the movie because the the movie isn't about Rudy Ray Moore really mm-hmm. and it isn't about it isn't a documentary or a or or a, a historical you know you know documentary fiction series on making those movies yeah what what that movie is about was contextualizing that era and black exploitation movies and it's not about who Rudy Ray Moore as a person but what Rudy Ray Moore accomplished what yeah. he did. Yeah. Right. And this sort of lightning in a bottle that he captured and that they respected. Yeah. Right. So, okay. So I think, I think we'll uh, end it there. Sounds good. Always a pleasure to have you on Christian. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So thank you, dear listener for listening to us ramble about film for, I don't know, probably a little bit over an hour now. <laughs> <laughs> so with that being said, I am your podcast person, Pavlo, also known as JPav, also known as Pav, also known as Pavi. And with me today, special thank you to fellow podcast person, Christian. Always, always a pleasure to discuss items with you. So thank you again for listening. Everyone, please be safe. Just before we sign off. Our non-legal legal disclaimer one more time is that our opinion is just that, our opinion. So whatever we express here today, you can agree with us, you can disagree with us, you can think, hey, I don't really care what goes into my historical films, I just want to be entertained. You can have that opinion, nothing wrong with that. So everyone, please, again, stay safe. Thank you for listening. Peace.